Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. This morning, as we are continuing in our series in Esther, we are starting, of course, the first week of Advent as well. And I love the Advent season. I mean, look at the way that this stage is decorated and the way that our building has been turned around. So many people helped to do this, and so thankful for all of you. Too many people to name because all of you put in some great work, but thank you for all the work that you've done to transform this, to prepare us and to prepare our hearts for Advent, for the Advent season. And, uh, you know, as we were, I, I love everything about the Christmas season, like we, even the music, right? And we don't realize this all the time because we're, I think, used to the Christmas hymns, but there is some great message theology in a lot of the Christmas songs that we sing. I was realizing that as we were driving back from California on Friday after Thanksgiving, or celebrating Thanksgiving with our family out there, and it is the first legal day to listen to Christmas music, the day after Thanksgiving. And so we were cranking the Thanksgiving or the, the Christmas music on the way back from California and just celebrating that together, and we were worshiping on the way home. So I love all that music. I love almost everything about Christmas. And so uh, this is a great time of year, and I'm glad to be here with you on the first day of Advent as we celebrate that together. But we still have a couple weeks left in our Book of Esther, in our Book of Esther series called Hidden Kingdom, Present King, and we just have two weeks left. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to be really sad to, to finish this series and to say goodbye to it because I have really loved going through this book together. I hope it has been as beneficial to you as it has been to me. I said at the beginning of the series, this is the first time I've actually taught through the book of Esther in a sermon series or otherwise. And, it, and of course, it tends to be one of those neglected books, especially on a, in a sermon series. And so I'm happy to be able to have gone through it and to be continuing to finish it as we go through it together these last couple of weeks. Um, but as I also mentioned, like this is one that is typically reserved for women's Bible studies. It just kind of is. That's how things work out. And I've had a lot of women come up to me as we've gone through this series saying, Esther's my favorite book. You know, thank you for doing this series on it and that kind of thing. And I, 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 mean, I look at them and I want to say to them, like, yeah, you guys have been holding out on us. All you women have been going through Esther all these years. You've been holding out on us as men. You, just, you didn't tell us how wonderful this book was. Or maybe you did. We just didn't listen to you, whatever it was. But uh, this has been hugely uh, in, uh, beneficial for me uh, in a lot of ways. I've been wanting to do the book of Esther for like the better part of a year now. Finally got a chance to do it here at North. And I knew that the, the, the Esther story was a great story, but in a lot of ways it's, it's even more than I thought it was going to be with all this kind of political intrigue and action and drama that's going on. But I think probably the most remarkable thing that I didn't see coming is the depth of theology that happens in this book. It's like page after page we see these things about God, which is really ironic because it is the only book that doesn't directly mention God in the entire Bible, and yet it's so theologically rich. I think that's really, really remarkable. We see things like God's sovereignty in this. We see God's faithfulness. We see God's power to save and to deliver us. We see things like God's transcendence, which means his otherness, and his eminence, which means his closeness and his pers the, the, the way that he's personally involved in the lives of his people. We see his mercy and his grace like evident on page after page as we go through these uh, this story together, and so I hope you've been encouraged and, and, and built up as well as we've gone through this, and it's really amazing to see the way that this thing has developed, and as we get to these last two chapters, one of the things that we've seen especially is how God is even more visible as we move through the plot of this story, and we've seen that happen through the lives of the main characters in the book, especially Esther and Mordecai, as God has drawn them to faith in him, and as, as we see them trust more and more in God, we see God acting more and more, 
Uh, One of the ways that we've seen him act really is in the way that he's changed the will and the heart of King Xerxes in a lot of ways. And I think when you get to the end of this book, as we're reading through these last two chapters, you see that King Xerxes has changed almost as much as Esther and Mordecai has. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, King Xerxes is, you know, kind of came to faith or anything like that. But I think that as we see God working through the faith of Esther and Mordecai, we see this big, powerful King Xerxes, the most powerful man on the planet, his will being changed and kind of moved by God behind the scenes throughout this, throughout especially the last part of this book. It reminds me of what Proverbs 21 says, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, that God turns it wherever he will. And we're going to see as we open up to chapter 8 this morning, Esther, Esther chapter 8, that God's activity through the king actually continues to become even more profound. And as we do, we see that one of the great truths of this book is that God is still powerfully in control. Because if he can turn the will of the heart of this man, the most powerful man on the planet, then God can do anything in the world that he wants to. And with all that we have learned about the hidden God in the book of Esther, we see that God is still powerfully in control behind the scenes. Now, I mentioned all these other things that we've seen about who God is, all these theological ideas and truths about who God is. One of the things that we're going to look at, we started to see it last week, but we're going to especially see it over these, these last two weeks, is this idea of the justice of God. We're going to talk about what it means for God to be just and what the justice of God looks like as we go through these last couple of chapters together. Now, I got to warn you ahead of time, The concept of the justice of God in the book of Esther is a tricky one. And it's not necessarily tricky because God is just. It's tricky because the way that we see God's justice play out in this book is a lot different maybe than the way that we might typically understand it to work out. In other words, we are dealing with a book that is 2,000 years old, that is from a culture that is completely different than ours, based in an environment that is basically on the other side of the planet from where we are today. And so there's a lot of context that needs to be considered as we talk about the justice of God. When we started in the first week of the book of Esther, I mentioned that context is critically important for this book. We've got to understand the historical context, the theological context, and the biblical context. Well, that is especially true for us as we talk about the justice of God in these next couple of weeks. And we're going to review some of those things as as they fit into this process. But uh, in the end, right, we're working through a lot of tension that goes on through uh, here at the end of the book. Because the tension about God's justice is palpable here in these last couple of chapters. So if you look on the one hand, there is a happy ending for the Jews who are God's people. We're going to see it today. We'll see it next chapter or next week in particular in chapter 9. But um, at the same time, there's not a happy ending for all the characters in the book. For instance, Haman, right? At the end of chapter 7, Haman meets this really, really brutal end. And I think a lot of us would say, well, he's the villain. He's supposed to meet a brutal end. That's supposed to be what happens to him. And I was talking to somebody uh, this, this past week, and she, we were talking about this, and in particular, Haman and all that sort of thing. And she said, you know, every time I read the book and I see Haman die, like, I get happy about it because he's the villain, but then I feel bad about being happy about somebody dying, <laughs> right? And, that, and, and I really appreciated that because that's really the tension of this book is that at the same time, like, we realize that, yes, there is justice being served in the sense that this man who was going to kill the Jews, now is killed himself. He wanted to kill Mordecai, but instead he gets hung on those gallows that he built for Mordecai. But in the end, there is that tension about how should we feel about this? And as I was talking to, as as I was in this conversation, I just wanted to say, well, wait until we get to chapter 9 when 75,000 people die 
it really is a rough ending and a brutal ending to this book, but in the process of it all, there's celebration and kind of this aspect of justice that comes to the forefront. Now, Look, I think for some of us, you know, for some of us who are the more kind of like gracious and sensitive people, right, we struggle with that. For, some of, for, for others of us, we don't, right? Just think to ourselves, well, he's the guy who was killing people, so eye for an eye, justice means if he was a guy who was killing people, he deserves to die himself. However, justice isn't always that simple. You may know that Gandhi once said, eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Because in reality, retribution is not necessarily justice. And of course, Gandhi was a pacifist, but pacifists... Uh, but pacifists are not, right? We have to get to a point where we realize that retribution, just eye for an eye, is not actually perfect justice. So what does justice actually look like? Well, I think even in the church, we have different ideas of what justice is supposed to look like, right? Whereas one person might say that Haman should die, that's why we have the death penalty and it exists so that we can get rid of murderers, and as we get murderers off the street and we take care of them and make sure that other people don't die, innocent people don't die, and that makes our world more just. But others might say, well, that person is created in the image of God, and so nobody has the right to take that person's life other than God himself. Now, who's right in that situation? What does justice really look like? Well, that depends. Depends on how you understand the world. It depends on how you understand God. Depends on how you understand God's word. And so as we get into these last couple of chapters in Esther, uh, we're going to talk about how this helps us understand those issues. And, but before we do, I want to talk about just this bigger, wider concept of justice, right? When we're talking about justice, it's true that all of us, I think, have a general sense of justice in us, which just simply means that we see things uh, between, we, we recognize things that are right versus things that are wrong, things that are just versus things that are unjust. And this actually is a good thing, because I believe it's a part of what God has put in us because he's created us in his image, and God is a just God. And I think from an early age, you can see this actually in children. Children at an early age actually become proponents of justice. And you can test this out by just getting two children together, three cookies in your hand, give two cookies to one, and give one cookie to the other, and see the cry and the angst of, for justice that comes out of the one who gets one cookie, right? Immediately, what they're going to say is what? That's not fair, right? You gave him two, and I only got one. That's a cry for justice. And at the same time, you'll probably hear the adult respond, well, the world's not fair, right? And look, both responses are exactly right. On the one hand, yeah, things aren't fair. But at the, on the other hand, yeah, the world in general is not fair. Now look, justice is of course a big buzzword right now. You see people everywhere in our culture talking about justice as well. And I think almost everybody has this desire for what we want to see happen right with the world, what we believe to be just. And we differ wildly some, sometimes as far as what we believe that that looks like. I mean, you can have some people say socialism is the most just way to live, and other people say capitalism is the most just way to live, and they're diametrically opposed to one another in a lot of ways. You know, other people say the death penalty is just, and others say the death penalty is not just. You can have people like on the far ends of the right and left in our country, alt-right groups fighting against Antifa in cities like Seattle and Portland and Charlottesville, and they're both saying they're doing it for the cause of justice. Now, who exactly is right, and who gets to say what is just? Well, as Christians, we should probably say that God gets to say what is just. But then the question becomes, what does God's justice really look like? 
I think Esther chapters 8, 9, and 10 are going to help us understand that over the next couple weeks. We're going to talk about the first part of that this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Esther chapter 8 or your devices. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 here in just a minute. But before we do, I want us to remember where we are. We are at the place where Haman has just been executed at the end of chapter 7. Haman was, uh, of course, this evil persecutor of the Jews. He was second in command to King Xerxes in the Persian Empire, and he used the king's power to issue an edict that went throughout the entire empire that basically called for the elimination of the Jewish people under the Persian Empire, at least about a million people or so. Now, Queen Esther, who was Jewish, calls this to King Xerxes' attention, and King Xerxes gets so upset, and he defends his wife, and he ends up getting into a place where he uh, sentences Haman to be executed. And that's where Haman is. He's executed at the end of chapter 7. But as we get into chapter 8, one of the things we're still dealing with is that although Haman is dead, the edict that Haman wrote about all of the Jews being uh, eliminated from the empire and being eliminated from uh, being killed, essentially, is still in effect. So the danger to Esther, the danger to Mordecai, the danger to the rest of the Jews is still hanging in the air. And there's some time between the issuing of the edict and when the edict actually goes into effect, but time is quickly running out for the king to actually do something about that original edict. And really time is running out for Esther and Mordecai to convince the king to do something about it. And that's where we hit on in Esther chapter 8, verse 1. And we begin in verse 1, and it says this. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told, had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the, the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Well, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Well, let's stop here for a minute. You know, this chapter opens up with basically all of the ramifications of Haman's execution. And because Haman was technically executed as a traitor to the king, everything that Haman owned, including his land, all his property, all his money, which apparently was a substantial amount, was uh, gathered back by the king, returned to the king. And so the king gets to decide what to do with it at this place, and he decides to give it to Queen Esther. Now, if you remember back through our story, you remember many times where the king, three times at this point where the king has said to Esther, like, ask me anything you want, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. It seems like eventually he gets to that place where he fulfills that promise because Haman's, Haman's wealth was extraordinary. It probably was almost half of what the king owned. So in this case, he actually kind of fulfills his promise to Esther, gives her everything that Haman owned, and Esther turns around and then gives it to Mordecai. 
Now, Mordecai not only gets everything that Haman owned, but he also gets Haman's position of political power. The king with his signet ring, which gives the authority of the king to anybody who has it, he gives the signet ring to Mordecai as the one who had saved his life. And so we get to the end of this, and what we realize, and we see this reversal that began last chapter where everything is reversing, and Haman ends up, you know, hanging on the same gallows that he built to kill Mordecai. It all kind of comes full circle because Mordecai now has everything that Haman owned, and he has Haman's political power as well, which is terribly ironic because, of course, Haman was trying to kill Mordecai, and now Mordecai has everything that Haman owned. And so all this stuff that they get is certainly a blessing, right, Mordecai and Esther. But at the same time, the thing that is still hanging in the background is that this edict that went out to kill all the Jews in the empire is still there, and it hasn't been revoked. And so Esther and Mordecai could have all the stuff that the king might give them. It's not going to do them any good if that edict stays into effect. And so you can almost see like Esther and Mordecai getting these things and they're like, yeah, that's great, king. But what about that edict that went out that is threatening a million people throughout your kingdom and is threatening us as well? What are you going to do about that? And it seems like for whatever reason, the king either forgot about it or he doesn't want to deal with it. And he just kind of retreats back to his palace and doesn't do anything about it. Some time passes, we're not sure exactly how much, and Esther realizes, look, we're running out of time. This edict is going to go into effect soon, and so I need to go plead with the king for him to do something. He doesn't seem to get it. And so for the second time, Esther goes uninvited into the throne room of the king under the threat of death, of a penalty of death, and asks him to revoke the edict that Haman had written. Now, because it had been sealed by the king's authority, the king says to her essentially, look, That's something that has been issued by my authority. Under Persian law, I can't take that back. But I've given the signet ring to Mordecai, so you guys can write whatever law you think will help to kind of mediate that first edict or reverse that first edict. But he couldn't take it back. And so as we get to verse 9, then, we see exactly what Mordecai and Esther do. Verse 9 says this. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Savan on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and to the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Now verse 15, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. 
And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jew for fear, uh, Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, even though, of course, the original edict couldn't be reversed, everything in this section, as you read it, communicates the reversal of what had happened in the original edict. First of all, as the edict goes out, it goes out on the same horses to the same places and the same languages that the original edict went out into. Secondly, as we see this thing uh, written by Mordecai and sent out, we see the reaction. Really, the, the author spends a lot of time showing us the reaction of the Jews when they see the edict come out. Whereas uh, under the first original edict, they were in sackcloth and they were mourning and they were weeping and they were praying. During this time, they see the edict come out and they celebrate, they have a festival, and there's rejoicing and celebration and joy that happens to them. Then the author kind of drills down on Mordecai and shows us that originally, although the original edict came out and Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes and he went to the king's gate and he begged Queen Esther that she might be able to influence the king in some way, now Mordecai comes out dressed in fine linen, dressed in royal robes with the crown on his head, in the king's presence, not at the king's gate, but in the king's presence. And then as he comes out, he has the signet ring, which is more authority and power than Esther ever had. And so you can see what the author is doing is he's setting us up for this great reversal that continues to happen through this passage, which is hugely important as we try to understand why it is that the Jews were so excited about what's happened here. <clears throat> because if you read the actual edict, and it's cited here in this chapter, the edict just says that the Jews have the right to defend themselves. That's really all it says, right? It doesn't seem like a huge victory of legislative triumph by saying you just have the right to defend yourselves against anybody who's going to attack you. That edict's gone out, so people are going to attack you. Now you have the right to defend yourself. I think in some ways we look at it from a modern sensibility in a country like what we live in, and we realize that that's an inherent right that we have to defend ourselves, so it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But for the Jews in this situation, first of all, it illustrates how desperate they were in that situation, right? It's better to at least have the ability to defend yourself rather than allowing people to just kind of run through and kill you and your family. But at the same time, and I think more importantly, it illustrates something that we really need to latch on to here. It's that the Jews are recognizing that with Mordecai rising to power, that with Esther rising to power and Mordecai writing laws into effect, that God is the one who is providing. I think we've talked about these questions that the exiles have throughout this entire book and really throughout the entire exile history of the Old Testament where they're asking, is God going to fulfill his promises? Has God forgotten about us? Is God going to deliver us? They have all these questions in mind. I think for the first time what's happening here is that the Jews realize this is God responding. In fact, God is going to save us. He is going to deliver us. And it's not so much that we get to defend ourselves, but it's that God is going to be our defender. That just like he did so many times throughout our history with our ancestors, delivered them from their enemies, he's going to do the same thing for us here. And you get to chapter 9 and you see the fact that there's an exile, a group of exiles who defeat 75,000 people and you can't help but think, this is one of those big miraculous times where God shows up and delivers his people. But here's what's important about that, is that what this does is it puts our focus on God who is the actor in the midst of this. I've said throughout this series that the purpose of 
Going through the book of Esther is not to approach it from an exemplary approach. In other words, we're not supposed to look at characters in the story and say, I should be more like Mordecai, or I should be more like Esther, or I shouldn't be like Haman, or we should be like the Jews in this situation and not like the Jews in that situation. That's not really the point of this book. The point of this book is really to see God's activity moving forward and to see that God is protecting his redemptive purposes throughout the book. Why does he deliver the Jews? He delivers the Jews because he promised that Jesus would be the ultimate true king and the Messiah who would come through the line of David. And if the Jews get wiped out under the edict of Haman, then that is not possible anymore. And so God acts to deliver his people so that Jesus, the Messiah, not just the one who saves the Jews, but the one who saves the entire world, the one who crushes the serpent's head, would come. Now, as we move into our understanding of what God is telling us today, this is certainly where our focus needs to be, because I think, you know, context changes, obviously, history changes, circumstance changes, but the character of God and his purposes don't change. And I think as we look at a place like Isaiah 9, like we read earlier, that we read earlier this morning as we opened up our, our service with this, it reminds us of this is God's purpose in doing this. Isaiah 9, 6 through 8 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, in the line of David, and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Look, behind the drama of all that's going on in this book, whether it's King Xerxes and Haman and what is going to happen to Mordecai and Esther, the bigger and more important activity of what's going on here is that God is accomplishing his redemptive purposes according to who Jesus is and who Jesus will be. And if we're going to understand God's work of justice in this world, we have to understand this critical point, that God's ultimate war is not against nations, it's against, or not against people groups, it's against sin and evil in this world. And that ultimately, God's promise to deliver the world from sin and evil comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. And he acts to protect that promise preserving the Jews for this purpose, that Jesus would come so that he could die to destroy the enemy of creation, the enemy of God's world, which is sin and evil on the cross. And this leads us to the cross of Jesus where God's perfect justice is demonstrated. And God's perfect justice is demonstrated in that the sin and evil of this world would be paid not by those who sin, would not be paid by the unrighteous, but by Jesus, the Son of God himself, on the cross. That where evil and sin is found, which is in every nation, and every human heart, it is defeated at the cross, and that's where God brings justice. Now at his justice again, and his justice shows us that it's not the unrighteous that pay for their sin, but Jesus, the sinless and innocent one, takes on the penalty of our sin and pays for it at the cross. That is the justice of God. Romans 3 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Now the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now look, this was to show God's righteousness because of his, in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a lot in that passage, but if we're to understand God's justice, we recognize that justice is given to us in the form of grace received by faith. And look, we all, li- we all look at the world in one way or another and say there are things that are unjust, things that we want to be removed from this world around us, things that prevent justice from being realized in the world around us. And we want evil to be judged, but we often forget that evil, the evil that needs to be judged is right here in our own hearts. Alexander Solzhenitsyn pointed to the fact that the lines between good and evil aren't the boundaries between nations. They're not the boundaries between political parties or philosophies, as if there are the good people here and the bad people over there. But he pointed out that the battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. So we can question why 75,000 people die here at the end of the book of Esther, but God works through a world that is broken and full of sin, and it's broken because of our sin. And yet he doesn't spare his son the brokenness and the violence of this world, but his son takes on that brokenness and violence and redeems it at the cross. And look, in the end, God's justice is not fairness. It is not equity. Instead, at the cross, Jesus gets our punishment. And there's nothing fair about that. But that's God's perfect justice. God's perfect justice is his perfect grace given to make us perfectly righteous by his perfect sacrifice. And that perfect sacrifice is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Now, light coming into darkness is what we celebrate this morning. It's the hope that we celebrate as we enter into the Advent season on the first Sunday of Advent. And in Isaiah, as we read earlier, it says to us that the light has come upon the world. Not that the light came out of the world, not that the light came from from us, but that the light came upon the world. In Esther chapter 8, verse 16, we read very much the same thing, that the light came to the Jews and they rejoiced and celebrated. And so this light is something that we should expect to be otherworldly, and it's a different kind of hope based on a different kind of justice that we get in the cross of Jesus. It's not fairness. It's not the kind of justice that you and I would necessarily come up with on our own. It is distinctly God's justice for his purposes in God's economy. And so the question is, is that because God's perfect justice is actually grace to us, how should we respond to this? Well, you may have noticed, and, uh, you may have noticed recently that uh, Fred Rogers, of course, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood fame, has been getting a lot of attention in our culture lately. I think there's a couple of really good documentaries. I've seen at least one of them on Netflix. And uh, there's, of course, a huge movie that's out right now where Tom Hanks is actually playing Mr. Rogers, which if Tom Hanks is playing you in a movie, it's probably a pretty big deal. And that's a big thing right now. There are actually podcasts right now that are coming out left and right about Fred Rogers, of all people. And in some ways, like, I I was kind of confused about this. I'm thinking to myself, I remember watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood when I was a kid and it seemed really old-fashioned back then, and now like 30 years later, people are rediscovering Mr. Rogers. And, um, and so I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about why it is that he's so appealing right now at this particular point in our history. And they were saying because Mr. Rogers was known for really one thing in particular, he was known for his empathy. 
and that empathy in our world is in short supply. We live in a world that's divided, that's full of outrage, that if you disagree with me, you're automatically my enemy, and yet Mr. Rogers' empathy and his love for human beings allowed him to consider every person, whether they disagreed with him or not, whether they were from a different background, whether they were a different color or spoke a different language, he would always say what? Won't you be my neighbor? And the difference between an enemy and a neighbor is the difference between empathy and not having empathy. And you may know also that Fred Rogers was a Christian. In fact, he was a Presbyterian minister, and so it seems like he learned this from Jesus, where Jesus says, look, those are not your enemies. They are your neighbors. They may disagree with you. They may have a different agenda than you. They may mock you. They may have a different lifestyle than you, but in the end, they are your neighbor. Now, how are we supposed to have empathy for every person who's around us? Well, here's the thing. Again, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look, the reality is you may know that empathy means that we have a shared experience with another human being, and that causes us to be empathetic towards their situation. Sympathy is a little bit more detached. Sympathy says, like, I see your situation and I feel for you, but I'm not actually involved in that experience. Empathy is intensely involved in the same experience. We can have empathy for every human being who has ever lived in this planet because we are all in the same boat. All have sinned, and the hope that we have only comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so that means that our hope is not grounded in our own righteousness because we have all sinned. There is no self-righteousness there. It means that we can't purchase it with any amount of money. The status and influence we have in this world means nothing at the foot of the cross. Our education and our job performance won't get us there. Only Jesus' sinless performance gets us there. Every single one of us are in the same boat. Every human being you have ever met or ever seen, even the ones who drive you nuts, the ones you disagree with, are in the same boat with you, and that boat is sinking. And you needed a rescuer just like they need a rescuer. And Christians, as a result, should be the most empathetic people on the planet. And yet, how many times do you hear that Christians are the most empathetic people on the planet? Look, if we were acting towards others with the same perfect justice that we received from Jesus, we would be not only empathetic but sacrificial in our love, especially towards those who believe or who live differently from us. And we'll talk more about how justice flows out into our world a little bit next week, but for now... The place we need to be is the place of perfect justice, the place of the cross. And so this is our response this morning. As we, as we celebrate what hope means in the first week of Advent and what we want to see in this world as we talk about justice and the justice and the righteousness and the peace that can only come from the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, we celebrate ultimately what Jesus will bring to us. As Aaron mentioned earlier, when we celebrate Advent, we have one foot in celebrating the first arrival or the first coming of Jesus, but we also ache and look forward to the second coming of Jesus when this, when this promise of righteousness and peace and justice that will flourish all over the world and for eternity becomes a reality. And so this is why we do things like fast. And this morning, that's what we're going to do as we respond from now, the first day of Advent, until Christmas, which is when Advent ends, we are committing together to fast from something in our lives. Now, we fast typically because we recognize that we are laying down something good in our lives because there is something better that we are focusing our mind and our attention on for a specific period of time. 
Sometimes that's food for a day or so. Other times it might be media, it might be coffee, it might be something else in your life that you're willing to lay down so that every time you think of that thing that you have laid down, it reminds you of the greater thing that's to come. You know, Jesus said to the Pharisees that his disciples would fast when he left them, when, he's, when he was gone. Well, Jesus is now gone and we're waiting for him to come back. And so part of what fasting does is it creates in us a longing for what's to come. For the justice that will truly take place in this world one day, the righteousness and the peace of God that will flourish for eternity. It's a way of saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We are, de- we, are, we are stating our dependence on the kingdom to come and ultimately provide everything that we need in Jesus. And so this morning, over at our response stations, I want to encourage you to respond this way. You go to our response stations, you'll see some tables there, and in those tables there's a basket, baskets that will have these cards in them. The top part of the card says, today I lay down, and then it's got a blank there for you to write down what you're laying down for Advent. For the next 25 days, this is the thing I'm going to lay down. Maybe it's like fasting every Wednesday from food, maybe it's something really small, whatever it may be, the thing that might remind you of the longing that you have in the anticipation of Christmas. And then in the middle of this is a perforated edge. You can tear this card right in half, throw this top part in the buckets that's right there as you lay it down at the, at the response station, and then you take home this with you as a reminder of what you are fasting from throughout this Advent season. And you can put it in your Bible or put it on a refrigerator or wherever it reminds you again of your longing for the Christ child to come and as we celebrate what Christmas is, um, a longing for all that he will bring to this world. So um, I'm going to pray for us, and after I do, you're released to go to the tables and to use those. We want to ask our prayer partners to come to the response stations as well if you need somebody to pray with. Um, If we've been talking this morning about what it means to have faith in Jesus and the cross and all that stuff, and that seems foreign to you and you need someone to talk to, you can talk to one of our prayer partners about that, and, uh, and they'll help you kind of pray through that and point you in the right direction. So let's pray this morning as we close. Lord, we celebrate you this morning as we begin this season of Advent. And we find ourselves in very much the same place that the exiles were during Esther's time. Where, Lord, we know that you have been faithful to us in the past and we know that your promises are true. But at the same time, Lord, we're in this, we're in this place where we are anticipating what's to come, which is much better. And we've been delivered on the one hand already, but we're not yet fully delivered And we see justice and righteousness and we see new creation, but at the same time, not yet is it fully consummated. And so, Lord, we ask that we would be able to long with a holy longing through this season of all that you have promised and all that you are, that you would truly be our treasure and that your kingdom would truly be a satisfying promise to us. And as we lay down these things, may they remind us of how much we need you, Lord Jesus, and how much you have promised that every need, every want, every aching for justice, every aching for what is good, every aching for for things to be removed, every tear to be wiped away, is met with your work, your cross, resurrection, ascension, and your return. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. May you be the greatest treasure of this season for us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. In just a moment, 
we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. from this season is the light that comes into the darkness because the light has come into the darkness. We represent that by the lighting of the candles, the lights that are on the trees, the lights that we put on our homes. That's why every season, as much as I just cannot stand unraveling all those lights and putting them on my house, I do it as an act of worship to represent that light has come into the darkness during this season and that's what we celebrate. And so uh, this morning, may you know that the light has come into the darkness and he is just and the justifier of all those who will receive him. Go in the covering of the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.